Welcome back to the Green Element podcast, where we feature business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable. I'm your host, Will Richardson, and I can't wait to meet our guest today and help you on your journey of sustainability. Abina, welcome to the Green Element podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to finding out more about legacy events and, um, you know, what what you do there and how you've actually managed to, um, you know, steer your way through this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, hi, Will. Thanks for having me. My name is Abino and I'm really happy to be invited on the Green Element podcast today. So thanks for having me. No problem. And so how long have legacy events been around? Um, Legacy has been around since the autumn of 2016. So we're about four and a half years old now. The time has absolutely flown. And in that time, we've gone from being a one-man band, me. I started Legacy by myself as a sole trader. And now we're a small team of about four and still growing. So it's been a really exciting journey. Brilliant. And um, if we could touch upon prior to um the events that have been going on recently with covid etc um what kind of events were you um orchestrating and what kind of like could you tell us a bit about your day job because um we've all we all know what events but we think think of conferences or festivals or you know what kind of what what were you doing <laughs> it's a really good question i ask that myself all the time <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing so um legacy is a sustainable events agency and consultancy. So what that means is that we help companies organise in-person and now virtual events whilst considering the sustainability of the event. So it's environmental impact, it's carbon footprint and it's potential for positive social change. So on the one hand, we organise events and we do this to act as a showcase for other event professionals to show that sustainable events don't have to be lesser. They can be as high quality, as beautiful, as inspiring as other events where sustainability hasn't been considered. And then we also act as a consultancy as well, because sadly, my small team can't organise every event in the world. And we really want to empower other event professionals and people working in the events industry to help them understand what they need to do to reduce the environmental impact of their events. So we want to help event organisers create positive experiences without the negative impacts. Okay. And do you... Do you have a genre of events that you work with or would you do you work with any any events? We do tend to work with any events, but mostly those for businesses. So that tends to include conferences, workshops, seminars, that kind of thing. We also work on festivals as well and community group uh, events, but primarily events to do with businesses as opposed to private events, so weddings and that kind of thing. Okay. And you're a scientist by background, I believe. Uh, so does that does that help you with um when you're talking to event organizers i would imagine within the science maybe in the science fields because they'll go oh you actually know what we're talking about whereas if i was doing it they'd be like oh gosh (laughs) i think my science background has so many benefits to working in the events industry i think first of all because sustainability can be such a daunting subject and it covers so many areas that can be quite complex like climate change and carbon emissions and water use and waste i think sometimes it helps 
event organizers be able to talk to me because I understand those concepts because I'm trained in those concepts, but I can relate them to the events industry and talk about them in a jargon-free way, in a way in real English. So I'm able to communicate those concepts in a non-scientific way. And it also, I think it also helps as well because being a scientist, I'm really, I feel data and evidence is really important. So I really like to challenge some of the theories around sustainability and make sure that what we advise at Legacy is, is evidence-based and data-driven. That it's and also that it's practical for event organizers. So you won't ever find me or my team giving out vague, fluffy concepts like be green. We want to try and, you know, put some of the kind of evidence behind what we're doing. And then I think it also just makes me more credible and my, my team more credible because we we use theories, we use evidence, and so we, we know what works really. And so we try and bring that to our decisions as well. Brilliant. And what you said you set it up, what, four and a half, um, five years ago. What were you doing before this? Yep. So I'm a true eco-warrior. I have been since I started my career. So before I started Legacy, I worked um, as an arch- uh, at an architect's practice, so helping make new buildings and then also new cities and new developments more sustainable. Um, I've also worked in a social organisation as a sustainability manager, so trying to empower the community to be more sustainable as well as work on the buildings and spaces that they worked on as well. I've also worked as a consultant in sustainability, so I've helped lots of corporate organisations, um, EU organisations, the UK government with their sustainability and I've also worked directly in renewable energy so I used to help develop wind farms and solar farms so I've got a real really solid grounding in energy efficiency and sustainability but particularly with respect to the built environment so for me everyone always says well you, you worked as a scientist and you did all these jobs and then you worked you went to events it's so different but to me I don't see it as any different I've always specialized in the built environment and that's where most events are held it's just instead of looking at long-term solutions for the built environment, I'm looking at temporary events in the built environment. But the same principles still still apply. Brilliant, brilliant, and uh, that, that sounds like you've done a huge amount. Um, I mean, how long how long have you been working in this indus- in this kind of field industry for? <laughs> I'm going to give away my age, and as I mentioned, I've worked in various parts of the industry. But since about uh, 2003. Actually, in university as well, I've worked in sustainability and trying to reduce our environmental impact. So, brilliant. yeah, I have a lot of lot of experience in this sector. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! I think it's I think it's really useful, and I think that um, I'm kind of veering off a bit of a tangent. But you talk to people in um, some quite large organisations, and I do not mean this disrespectfully whatsoever, but there are some people that are in fairly senior positions in quite powerful organisations with two, three years experience and they're making decisions that have quite serious ramifications for the future and it does worry me slightly because you do need to have experience and um, depth to your a level of thinking when talking and um, pushing sustainability forward, because of the some because some decisions aren't just as quite shallow; they actually do have quite deep um, kind of ramifications. I guess. Yeah, I, I I agree to a certain extent, especially as sustainability is a word that is 
it covers such a range of issues, like I mentioned, from energy to water to waste to ecology. And it's hard for anyone, no matter how long they've been working in the field, to become an expert in mm. any of in all of those issues. But it really does help to have a grounding in at least a couple of issues so that you're speaking from from data and evidence, as I mentioned before. But as a scientist, I can also say that, and it's the environmentalist mantra as well, scientists often get frustrated because they present the facts and then they don't understand why people aren't acting on the facts. And we see that at the moment with COVID and the vaccine. I mean, to scientists, to epidemiologists, it seems obvious that everyone should get the vaccine. And, you know, I can see many people get frustrated about those who have alternative views. But one of the reasons I moved into events is because I realised that education isn't really the issue. The issue is, is mindset and changing mindset and behaviour. And that really requires a skill and ability to work with people, understand people and be able to change minds. And so, yes, having a long, a lot of experience in the sustainability industry is is important. But I think more important is the ability to be able to understand people and really make decisions that can and really lead. So be able to lead and make decisions and bring people along with you, I think, is the key to, to changing the world as, we, as we're trying to do. That, that's a humbling lesson for me as a scientist to realise that it doesn't matter, doesn't matter how many graphs I show or how many tables I show of data, that's not what's going to change things. I think, I mean, I mean, you've been doing this for long enough to remember what it was like talking about climate. I mean, the fact it's now called climate change, for example, it was called global warming, but you had too many people going, well, it's not getting hotter where I live. So therefore, it can't be global warming. It's like, uh, what about the word global before the word warming? Okay, well, why don't we change it to climate change? Because it's kind of the same, but different. And I don't know. And the science was absolutely there 25 years ago, 30 years ago. But we chose to ignore it. And I think it's just, yeah, the fact that we're now waking up. And I actually don't think it's science that's changed people's opinions. I think, I think you're right. I think it's actually, it's behaviour. It's you know seeing what's around them. Absolutely, and that's that's why that's why I think events are so important. Like I said, I'm loath to say as a scientist, but I really feel that events are the most powerful tool humanity has to change these things. I mean, all of the big changes in the human condition have come across come around because of big events and I'm not just talking about you know the ones we all know like Live Aid and Bob Geldof and that kind of thing I'm talking about events like COP26 coming up like events back in the 80s and 90s which led to a lot of the legislation we have being made Mm. events really are in my opinion the most powerful tool that we have to do this they're important and they're often undervalued I think people think events are frivolous and Mm. you know it's what we do to to party Mm. but they're not they're they're the the ways we bring people together, I think, are important for driving change. Knowledge, knowledge sharing um, places, yeah. aren't they? So um, that takes nicely into um, how do we how do we get together when we can't physically get together? What do events look like now? So for the last year or so, like everybody else, um, Legacy and the Legacy team have been trapped trapped in our homes. And we've really transitioned from being an in-person events agency to a virtual events agency. And we didn't do that solely because of the pandemic. Um, because sustainability is so fundamental to what we do, we've been talking about the virtues of virtual events for a long time. And that's because inherently virtual events are more sustainable. And that's a fact. I love events 
obviously, by what I do. I love in-person <laughs> events. I love meeting people. But it cannot be denied that in terms of carbon emissions, virtual events are 97%. Uh, they have 97% less carbon emissions. In terms of waste, they're much more sustainable because obviously you're not generating waste from people staying at a destination, eating and drinking there, etc. And they're also um, more sustainable socially as well. The social sustainability is often left out of the equation when we're talking about this subject. But I'm sure we've all seen over the last year, virtual events are so much more inclusive. And I mean that in many ways. First of all, you can communicate and engage with people globally in a way that you never could before. I went to a conference, an online conference last week, and some of the speakers were giving case studies from Kenya and from New Zealand. And I would never have had the opportunity to speak to those people in the world before COVID, whereas now it's easy. It's just a flick of a switch. But then also in-person events often exclude a lot of groups. So often, for example, carers or people with caring responsibilities are unable to go to in-person events. People on low incomes are unable to go to to in-person events. And so a lot of groups who perhaps were excluded before are able to access virtual events. And so that, that can only be a good thing for sustainability in the social sense mm. I, I, I think yeah brilliant yeah totally spot on and I think and how like to someone listening to this what does a virtual event look like I know we were talking about it um prior to this podcast but could you is it could you explain what a virtual event looks yep, like of course and it's, it's still evolving I feel like we're still at the stage perhaps the industry was if, you, if you're old enough, like me, to think back to the early days of mobile phones, and we thought mobile phones were these huge brick-like objects that we held to our head and shouted into, um, and you look at where mobile phones are now, you see how quickly the industry has evolved in those, I suppose, 40 years. And so with virtual events, if you think of where we are now as the shouting into the mobile phone 80s era, that's where we are. But essentially, a virtual event is an event that's held entirely online or or on the internet. And it still can incorporate elements of a traditional in-person event. So if it's a conference, it still can have keynote speakers and networking and that kind of thing. But it's really its own entity. It's a completely new way of communicating and engaging people. And we're still finding out that finding out about that and I find that really exciting both with my scientist hat on to really explore okay so taking the principles of what makes an event how do you translate that online and make it successful and also just because it's exciting to be here at the birth of a new a new industry and seeing where that goes I think there's some of the potential with um, augmented reality and AI and VR are really quite exciting yeah yeah I bet yeah yeah absolutely and the because when we were talking before you we were talking about um in person and virtual and you said it's bad it's not well it, you know you can't compare it's a bit like comparing theater to i think you said theater to cinema didn't you mm. um and i liked that i think that made a lot of sense because they are very they're very different and um because i i was in um you know i was speaking at this event and they had this VIP section. If people can visualize this and you, you know, you clicked on this VIP section on the tab and then you had this uh, map of different tables that came up with seats, but you could see that seats were taken by um, people and you saw which ones were free and you pressed um, with your mouse 
on a chair in a table. And then you got brought into, we've all possibly been on Zoom rooms or in the virtual rooms and you just brought, brought into a room with people and you started just chatting to the people and you was like, oh, sorry, would you mind if I um, sit down here? And it was, you kind of joke about it, but they're like, of course they're going to go, yeah, it'd be kind of weird if they went, no. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, okay. But no, they were really, you know, they were really nice. We just chatted a bit and I would never have met these people, you know, and I was sitting in my shed in the garden while I was doing this. And it just made me really realise that virtual events can actually be pretty phenomenal experiences and you but you've got to have the same um you know you've got to have the same mindset as you would do to when you go to a conference although I think a lot of people don't have the right mindset when they go to a conference they still try and multitask but almost more so you can't multitask when you're going to a virtual event you literally have to go to your seat your chair and sit there from nine to five possibly go for lunch but you know not have meetings not be phoning people not be but really be present at that moment in time. And I think they, I think you could probably get quite a lot out of Ava. I think so. I think so. And with, uh, with the legacy team, we're really determined to show that a virtual event can be a really worthwhile experience. So we've done a lot of research on different platforms and applying the right platform to the right kind of event. And I think a lot of people think that a virtual event is just the long Zoom. They're often forced to go to them by their company. So, you know, they're sat, they're sat at the computer. One, one ear is sort of on what's happening on the Zoom. The other is doing their Sainsbury's online shopping list. And then they're not fully engaged where, I, as you said, a virtual event is not it's not the inferior cousin to an in-person event, which we're going to ditch as soon as we get back into the world. It's a completely different format of engaging people. So the way to approach it is to tear up how you ran your in-person events and start again. If you try and pick up your four-day, all-day conference and turn that and put that online directly, so the same length of sessions, the same number of speakers, the same content, it's probably not going to work because virtual isn't designed for that format but if you think creatively as to what is an event and what is it what's the point of this event what am I trying what do I want my audience to do do I want them to meet each other and network am I communicating some information so if you go back to a blank piece of paper and start from there and then design your virtual event you end up with moments like the one you experience where you end up on a table with people you don't know and the technology enables you to chat to those people in a way you probably wouldn't do in person so those are the benefits and I completely agree we ran an event um, looking at sustainable transport last summer and some of our guests included people like um, Tesla and uh, Virgin Galactic speaking and at an in-person event if you wanted to go and speak to the person from Tesla you can imagine how difficult that would be there'd be a long queue of people to speak to them and you might feel a bit nervous you, all of the, those barriers are removed online. I mean, you're on the same level. There's much less hierarchy. You're on the same level as the, you know, the yeah. chief exec of Virgin Galactic, and that that's a real opportunity for businesses and for networking. It's just about how you apply the tools. Yeah. And are there lots of platforms out there? I mean, I guess a lot of this is based on software. And um, if you if you're listening to this. Uh, um, and you work or run an organisation and you're thinking, I wouldn't mind putting on an event. How, I guess, come to you? I guess I'm answering my own question. But, you know, how, how, do you, how do you work out what, um, where to go, what to do? And are there much better ones out there? Are there 
because you talked about the long Zoom and my other half is um, getting back to OT work at the moment and she's been on a few conferences and I put them in inverted commas because actually it's been quite a lot of just Zoom calls and it and I think that's sadly what a lot of these are, are still. They're not. So how do you how do you know what to do? Yeah, it's a really good question. And again, it's where I think you should start in that question I said, what is the point of this event? So I'm not knocking Zoom or Teams or Google Meet or whatever your online meeting platform of choice is. Going back fundamentally to what an event is, you're trying to bring people together. You're trying to allow people to connect. And the technology is a tool to help you do that. So if you have a small group, for example, a Zoom or Meets works fine for that. For small meetings, perfect. In the same way, though, as you wouldn't try and run a huge global conference in your company's tiny meeting room, when you start to scale up or start to think about bigger events, Zoom and Meet and Hangouts are generally not the right tools for that. And there's a whole plethora of platforms and they all have pros and cons. So some of the ones that we use include um, Hopin, which has been in the news recently because they've received an awful lot of investment funding. We use Remo, which is the one I think you alluded to earlier, where you clicked on a chair and it suddenly took you oh, into a network. Oh, right. That's yeah. so funny. That you <laughs> I wouldn't have to know what platform it was. <laughs> we do this all the time. And that's, that's the skill of the organiser, that you weren't even aware what platform it was, but it obviously was designed in a way that you just knew what to do. And right. um, we use Swapcard as well. We use Run the World. We use that we work with so many platforms you want to try and stay platform agnostic so that we can really be objective in applying the right platform to the job that needs to be done but yeah there are whole loads if you think outside of your zoom there's a whole world out there with virtual platforms that do really cool things and some of them now are starting like i mentioned to incorporate vr as well so they are mind-blowing in in what they can achieve in terms of the experience would you need vr headsets in order to have vr conferences it depends some of the fuller platforms you would need a vr headset although these days with the quest which is you know much more cost effective that's not so prohibitive anymore um but some oh, of them sorry, were what, what's a, what's a quest <laughs> sorry, <laughs> so uh quest is a vr um headset put up by oculus i believe and it's in the it's about 300 pounds or something for a headset and that allows so if you know any teenage boys they're probably all, all over this already oh, and really? they're spending their evenings yeah. playing together on that so uh, it's not something that everyone can afford but it's not as cost prohibitive as some of the other headsets which cost multiple thousands only five years ago but if you're not willing to invest in that for all your attendees which i imagine not everyone is there are still um augmented reality type features that some platforms incorporate so some platforms try and create a whole 3d experience as well so you can almost recreate a stadium or recreate um going to a theme park or whatever experience it is that you want to do within the platform using augmented reality and that doesn't require a headset uh, so you, i mean you've you you quite rightly brought up earlier that um virtual um online conferences open up to the attendees and there are many more people that are able to attend from all over the world from all different demographics um, I guess the same is in place for the people that are running, that wanting to put on these conferences as well, because I guess for organ- smaller organisations, not-for-profits, um, that have a very good, you know, model, and they are doing so much good that actually it would be really good if lots and lots of people heard about them 
but the thought of putting on a real life conference would be terrifying because of the costs that are involved. And I would imagine there's a lot of upfront fees that are involved on the real life conferences because you've got to get make sure that caterers are turning up, make sure that et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it must be much cheaper to run an online conference. Um, not necessarily, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> if you think of it as a straight analogy, so in for an in-person event, your biggest cost is probably going to be your venue. Whereas for an online or virtual event, you still have a venue as such, but your venue is your platform. And some platforms do cost more than others. So some platforms which do have some of the really innovative features that I've mentioned, at the moment, they, they do cost more. So there is a cost to putting on an online event as well. And then obviously some of the other costs you don't have, like catering, for example. But another significant cost for an in-person event is to provide your delegates with some kind of souvenir or goodie bag or giveaway or something like that. And a lot of companies still want to do that for their audiences, even when the events are online, because it helps with their brand recognition and also because they recognize that their stakeholders are just fed up right now and they would appreciate a nice gift. And so there are costs to that as well and environmental sustainability impacts as well. So it's not entirely impact free running a virtual event, but generally it's a lot more sustainable and it's a lot more accessible, as you mentioned. And the real benefit, I think, that some charities and not-for-profits and organisations like that have is they're really connected to their audience anyway. They have a purpose. They know who they want to target. They know how to talk to those audiences. And that translates really well to putting on any kind of event, whether it's in-person or online or virtual. Are there organisations that, because I would imagine these platforms say they cost £10,000 a month or whatever, um, because there is, I, I would hazard a guess, running a software company myself, um, I would hazard a guess there's an awful lot that goes on behind the scenes. And that's, that. Just, it sounds expensive, but actually, if you actually knew what was going on, you'd be going, oh, wow, there's that much to have to do. Um, so are, but are there companies out there that almost have the software that they they rent and then they subcontract it out to people so but they so therefore almost they would be taking the hit so it would be up to them um because they would say right well we'll take 20 percent of all ticket prices and if they if they have an organization they're like you're never going to get enough people i'm sorry we're not going to take you on as a client are there companies out there that do that yeah there's so many like i said we're like you know the kind of the bubble the tech bubble in Silicon Valley that's where we are with virtual event platforms so um, I'm finding it really interesting looking at the different business models are that are emerging and I'm not quite sure which one's going to win out yet I don't really know so the business models range from kind of like you mentioned so some companies will produce a platform that can be white labeled so the platform has all the features but a company can then brand it in the way that they want and the company can buy that platform outright but obviously the downside of that is they then don't have any future maintenance or they can subscribe to this white labels platform and then they get the benefit of updates all the time so that's one model that works um, another model i mentioned Hopin, who i think are now worth four billion pounds due to recent investment which is unheard of in the events industry and their model is that they have a very, um, well, a relatively cheap model for organizers, which is something like $100 per month to use the basic features of their platform. But then they also have an enterprise 
rate as well that bigger uh, organizations can take and that allows the bigger organization to customize the platform it gives them more access to event support so that model is now becoming fairly common as well and it remains to be seen if if that will work and then other platforms the model is a bit like eventbrite the ticketing platform if your event is free you can use the platform for free but if you charge tickets for your online event they'll take a percentage of your ticket price and so, yeah, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet which model is going to going to work. And also, early days, there's quite a low barrier to entry to developing online platforms at the moment. It's not like with a hardware company where there's a capital investment needed to, you know, source your mm. items, set up your supply chain, that kind of thing. With an online event, if you're fairly tech savvy, you can go a lot of the way to developing a platform. And because there's a low barrier to entry, that means that I think we're going to see the next two years really becoming quite a competitive space. I've just realized for people, most people that listen to this podcast on a fairly regular basis, um, I'm not asked any of the questions I normally ask. <laughs> I found it really interesting talking to you about uh, you know, if we would it be possible if we kind of delve into a bit about your you know your organization and what it is that you do um how do you engage um staff suppliers and customers with your um mission and purpose um so like all companies, we've had to evolve in the last year, but a lot of the fundamental principles we had at Legacy have shown to be really resilient and worth following. So, for example, like I mentioned, I've worked in sustainability a long time and I'm a big fan of practicing what you preach, in particular, well-being and having a work-life balance. So from the beginning, Legacy has been a four-day-a-week company. We work Tuesdays to Fridays. Obviously, if there's an event on, we, we, we work Mondays as well because an event has a fixed deadline. But generally, our office hours are Tuesdays to Fridays. And I feel vindicated taking that decision right from the beginning because you can see now that countries like Spain are now looking at a four-day week and the UK government is too, to show that in terms of productivity, People who work four-day weeks are just as productive as those who don't. And we also have the benefit of having longer time to recover and recuperate. So practicing what we preach is really important to us. And then with our customers as well, the way we engage with them is just by being really honest and really open about what we're trying to achieve, but still sticking true to our mission, which is to make the events industry more sustainable. So we try and offer advice and expertise to our customers and guide them to their goals, but without guilt or judgment. I feel that a lot of people with sustainability switch off automatically when you try and guilt them into making decisions. It's just not effective. So we just try and make sure that we're speaking the language, we don't use guilt, and we're just really honest about what we're advising. And we also try and be um, as cooperative as we can in the industry. I really feel that the only way we can change is by working together. And so we do a lot of work. We volunteer a lot of our time. We set up, a, we offer a lot of our tools. We set up an online discussion forum as well that's free to access for anybody called The Green Room, where people can discuss the issues with sustainability and events. So we try and be really generous with our time to show that Yes, we are a business, but fundamentally, we do believe that the events industry can be sustainable and we're all working towards this common goal. 
we'll put a link to the green room that sounds really good I, i'm i'm definitely going to go into it as well um but we'll put a link on our um, podcast page uh and so when it comes to running an ethical and sustainable business, what would you say has been your biggest struggle so far? And can you tell us a bit about how you've overcome it? Um, yeah, so it's a difficult question. I think staying true to our values has probably been our biggest struggle. It's um, Anyone working in sustainability will know that it's there's always a trade-off with the decisions you make. So I mentioned earlier social sustainability being important, but obviously climate change is probably the biggest issue we face. So how do you balance the need to bring people together, to bring decision makers together in person, because that's the best way humans do make decisions, but also balance that against the need to understand that expecting people to travel increases carbon emissions. So there's a trade-off there. Um, With the social thing, how do you balance the fact that Bringing people together is wonderful for local communities if you can feed into those local communities. But again, you're contributing to more waste problems, to more carbon emissions. So, so that there's a trade trade off there. Um, in our work, we really like to use sustainable venues. So venues that have demonstrated that they have a clear commitment to improving their environmental impact and their social uh, impact as well. Unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of these venues tend to be in the middle of the countryside and lovely rolling hills where they have the space to be able to move forward their goals. But venues in the middle of the countryside are often quite difficult to access by public transport. Mm. So how do you balance the need to want to use these venues because they are true examples of sustainable venues, but you can't use public transport to get there? So. Yeah, I think the most difficult challenge is just understanding the trade-offs with sustainability and just being clear on what it is you're trying to achieve and just being honest about the trade-offs that you're making. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, you say you work for um, a four-day week. Have you had any customers or clients, um, I guess, complain about it and go, oh, uh, you don't work very hard or, you know, what, what you know, what? Like, what's the reality of it? Because I think, because I'm with you, I think that it's kind of obvious that it's it's fine. Um, we've had absolutely no pushback at all. And I think now post-COVID, we will have even less pushback. So it helps that we've done it from the beginning. So we don't know any other way. I mean, we, my team, we've all obviously, we've had jobs before. We've worked in organisations where we've worked a five-day working week. But at Legacy, no issues at all. We have a small note in our email signatures to say, don't really expect emails from us on Mondays. Mm. We communicate that to our clients as well. Like I said, if an event is coming up and we need to work on a Monday to deliver the event, of course we will work. That's the same as people who might, you know, need to work on a Saturday every now and then for their for their work. Mm. But generally, no. And when we tell people, they're, they're really um, understanding and actually they, they think it's a really great idea. I think it's one of those business decisions that, it seems daunting and impossible to implement, but once you've done it, you can't imagine any other way. You'd never go back. And do people work, say, 10 hours? Because I used to work in Canada in a, um, running a restaurant for in a ski season, and they had the, you work four days a week, but you work 10 hours a day, four days a week. 
Um, I am a bit of a workaholic as the founder of Legacy, so I <laughs> I need to take my own advice. But we try really hard not to work long hours. So the working week is 9.30 to 6 p.m. And we do not have anything scheduled outside of those hours. My team is then friends, free to do what they like. So, yeah, it's a reasonable working week. We don't try and make up the hours that we lose on the one day on the remaining five, four days. Brilliant. Brilliant. And if you could offer one piece of advice to our listeners to help them with their purpose, what would that be? Um, that's a really difficult question. And I think it's one that I've really um, had to grow into myself. As I mentioned before, I was a scientist and thought that I, if I beat people over the heads with all of my my facts then they would change <laughs> excuse me and and that's not that's not true because we are all humans and fallible creatures and so as humans we all have a certain amount of cognitive dissonance where what we believe does not really feed through into the way we act and so you can see it in the medical world when you know people know that smoking causes cancer but they still smoke and they know if they eat sweets it's going, it might lead to obesity, but they still eat sweets. And the same is true when you're encouraging people to change their behaviour with sustainability. So just showing people graphs and figures and pictures of polar bears on ice caps will only get you so far. You really need to overcome that cognitive dissonance we all have. So I think my advice would be be understanding when you're talking to people about sustainability understand where they're coming from and what drives them and use their language to speak to them so if it's a business situation and you're trying to demonstrate the case study that benefits for uh, the ben- a case study to show the business benefits of sustainability when you're talking to the chief financial officer you might be wanting to talk about risk and the financial benefits but if you're talking to the marketing person there's a different way of speaking to them to get them to engage with you so understand who you're speaking to understand what drives them if you want to be successful in changing behavior and mindsets brilliant and how how do you you know how do you run um legacy and um from an environmental point of view do you do you carbon footprint your organization do you um have an environmental management program uh we do we um as we also organise events, we think that's really important so we understand the practical issues. So we've come up with nine themes at Legacy, nine themes of sustainability that we try and weave into everything we do. And they cover the big issues like energy and carbon and waste and transport for events, but they also cover community and ecology and water use, which often gets left out of the story. So for all of our events, we assess them against our nine themes to make sure we're doing everything we can against those themes and they're they're on our website you can take a look on the legacy website Um, in terms of carbon footprinting we do to an extent we find that carbon footprinting can often be a bit of a double-edged sword in the events industry because the carbon footprint can be so high from people traveling to events that it can be off-putting to clients who want to change their behavior And also, and this isn't specifically related to events, there's a tendency to just jump straight to carbon offsetting when you present someone with a carbon footprint. And we don't think that's a helpful solution. So, yeah, we're a little bit reluctant of only talking about carbon footprints when we're talking to our clients. We want to talk about sustainability in the holistic sense and what that client organisation can do particularly rather than offsetting. That's that's brilliant. It's really interesting, actually. That's, um, I am... I, I I don't know if you've listened to some of um, the shows before, but what, what 
we've got fairly strong views on offsetting per se in the fact that it's kind of academically proven they don't work. So we believe categorically if you you know, have a high carbon footprint, you need to be reducing in line with the 2050 real net zero and you may have to change your business model. And it may, it may be really hard to do, but, and there is a roadmap that you can do to that. And, Absolutely. Um, it's not as actually frightening. In most instances, it's not as frightening as you potentially think it. But I, what I've just kind of, what I find really interesting with what you've just said is because we have compare your footprint, the carbon footprinting software, and we think, but clearly very similarly to you, it's, I don't know, I just find that really, really, I just find it's that really one of the trade-offs of sustainability, it? isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, you I need to it. have the data, but you don't want to encourage people to take yeah. that data and then yeah, take the easy way out. I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but it's kind of, it's kind of glaringly obvious when you've just said it to me. Um, I'll certainly take that away from this conversation and take it back to the team and talk to them about how, you know, how do we disseminate that? And um, because I think you're right. If you calculated something in your mind, you want to minus it and that it may not, well, it's not the right way. <laughs> yeah. And we find humanizing it is really um, powerful as well. So once you've given someone that number, the natural instinct, like I said, is to try and offset it. But also, if you present a carbon footprint, no one really, except for people like me, knows what a ton of carbon is in real life. Mm. So if you present it in a way that relates to a relatable object, so it's the, so there's a graphic that's quite famous where it shows a ton of carbon in a balloon filled with air is the size of a balloon that's about 80 centimeters. Mm diameter which instantly gives you a model to relate to it's the size of so many buses stacked up or so many white houses and using those kind of frame of references i think speaks to people when they're talking about how they personally can reduce their impact as opposed from a number which doesn't mean much to them as opposed from what comes out of a calculator yeah no absolutely absolutely and so how do we um find out more about you and connect with you and um come and talk to you (laughs) <laughs> come talk to me love talking to people we all do. <laughs> in person and online so um we're on we have a website legacy-events.com we're about to launch a new product as well which we're really excited about called the legacy marketplace and that's at legacymarketplace.co.uk and that connects people organizing events with suppliers sustainable events suppliers and organizers just to make it easy and hassle-free and seamless the process of organizing an online and in-person event sustainably so to come and see us on the legacy marketplace um, come to our launch on the 13th of april so in about three weeks time and also we're all over social media and on linkedin as well so please connect with me on linkedin or follow legacy on twitter instagram facebook and linkedin Brilliant. Well, what we'll do is I will um, ask Christina and Lib to um, promote the 13th of April. Um, sadly, you're probably listening to this and it will be after the 13th of April. So um, hopefully you'll have seen it in our social media channels and um, so we'll promote it that way. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank, you, thank you so much for being on today. I've definitely really enjoyed myself and um, I feel a lot more I don't know, I feel a lot more knowledgeable about events now and where we're going and what we're doing. So thank you very uh, much for this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, I, I love to talk about this subject. Anyone who knows me knows I'll talk about sustainable events till I'm shut up. So please, please do <laughs> <laughs> ask me about sustainability and events anytime and to your listeners as well. Please, please do.
Awesome. Ask me any questions you. you have. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Sustainable Business Podcast. If you want to learn more about sustainable business and talk to other like-minded professionals, apply to join to our online community at sustainabilitysolved.org. Join now and find a space for you to collaborate, learn and inspire others to become more environmental. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to follow Green Element on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram.